This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Imagine walking up to a grand theater. Majestic spires curve into the shapes of crowns on the roof. Gold statues of formidable lions guard the entrance. And above you, a beautiful statue of an angel blows a trumpet. You step inside, rows and rows of red velvet seats. An intricate gilded staircase takes you to a plush balcony where the gold drapes on the walls seem to envelop you. But as you look around the empty theater, you realize you're alone. A shiver starts to crawl up your spine as you look towards the stage. Something wants you to approach. You head back down the stairs, winding towards the lower auditorium. You make your way past the dark, empty rows, heading towards the elevated stage. A single light illuminates the stage, casting a ghostly glow on the black painted surface. Suddenly, the room gets cold. Your skin prickles in the chill. You sense someone has entered the room with you. You turn, but no one is there. You look around, eyes scanning every corner of the theater, but the space remains empty. You shake your head, feeling foolish, and turn back towards the stage. And there, in the small pool of light, is a man dressed in a top hat and coattails, staring out at the empty rows of seats. He doesn't look at you. He doesn't acknowledge you. He just stands there, dead center, waiting for his audience to arrive. He raises one hand out as if reaching for something. And then, just like that, he's gone. You're alone once more. This is the ghost that awaits you at the haunted Princess Theater. Welcome to Haunted Places. I'm Greg Polson. Every other Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to the Princess Theatre in Melbourne, Australia, where the resident phantom of that opera has an origin story like no other. If you can't get enough haunted places, don't forget to subscribe. You can find us on your favorite podcast directory, as well as on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave a five-star review. It really helps. The Princess Theatre in Melbourne, Australia, is one of the crown jewels of the performing arts in Australia. A stunning building, completed in 1886. The dramatic Princess Theatre has been delighting visitors for well over a century, with productions of popular musicals and operas. 
starring some of the greatest performers in history. But within its walls, a darker story lurks. The history of theater is littered with superstitions. You dare not say the title Macbeth inside a theater for fear of being cursed. And one should never say good luck to a performer in case bad luck strikes them down. And one should always leave a light burning on the stage, a practice known simply as the ghost light. Many of these superstitions are rooted in the countless tales of spirits that haunt the halls of theaters around the world. Whispers of deceased theater owners, playwrights, musicians, and performers that fill auditoriums late at night when performances end. Many of these stories have been debunked as nothing but misinterpreted frights or rumors. But some, as in the case of the Princess Theater, are very, very real. In 1994, an actor in the cast of the Princess Theater's latest production of the seminal musical West Side Story found himself alone in his dressing room, hours before the show was set to start. The building was quiet around him, as not so much as a stagehand had arrived for that day's work. Planning to take some time for meditation and focus, the actor decided to get a head start on his stage makeup, giving himself plenty of time to ease into his character for that night's performance. The actor placed his costume pieces carefully at his dressing table. Pants, shirt, coat, hat. And sat in front of the bright lights of the makeup mirror to start applying his stage makeup. Soon, the actor started to feel like he wasn't alone. He called out, Anyone there? Perhaps the stage manager, who usually arrived early, might have come in without announcing herself. But no reply came. Shrugging it off, the actor turned back to the task at hand. But try as he might to focus on the evening's imminent performance, he couldn't shake the feeling that someone was in the building with him. As the minutes ticked by, the actor could feel a presence enter the room with him. A sudden chill seemed to overtake the room. The actor looked around, but no one had entered. Now, moving from perplexed to nervous, the actor struggled to talk himself down, to warm himself up in the unexplained cold air. Surely, his nerves were getting the better of him, his imagination running wild in the empty space of the hall of a dressing room. But he couldn't shake the feeling that someone was there with him. And then, just as the actor was finally starting to calm, his hat flew off the table next to him. The actor watched, frozen in shock, as the hat hit the wall across the room, sliding down to the floor. The actor bolted out of the theater, refusing to ever step foot in the princess alone again. So who, or what, scared our hapless thespians so badly? This is the story of the man known simply as Federici, a singer of unparalleled talent, who toured the world for years as the leading man in theater's most notable operas, whose life was cut tragically short, and whose ghost has haunted the Princess Theater for over 120 years. 
We'll return to our story in just a moment from the Parcast Network. And now, back to the story. A commanding man, dressed in an elaborate opera costume, takes center stage. He's tall, confident, a seasoned performer. The music cues up. He opens his mouth and begins to sing in a smooth, powerful bass baritone. The audience is absorbed by the man's performance as he moves gracefully across the stage. His song builds to a crescendo and the audience bursts into applause, relishing the man's beautiful song. That was the daily life of Frederick Baker. Born in Florence, Italy in 1851, Frederick Baker soon adopted the stage name Federici, which is how he was known by his adoring fans around the world. Federici grew up in Britain, anticipating a career in diplomatic service, but Federici also spent his youth nursing a deep love for music and opera. When he was 23, he decided to pursue a career as a singer. He found himself quickly enjoying a wildly successful career as one of England's preeminent singers, regaling the elite of London nightly with concerts and oratorios at the Theatre Royal under Lane. For years, Federici traveled the world, starring in such operas as The Pirates of Penzance and The Mikado. Amidst rave reviews, Federici's productions took him from England to France, Germany, America, and finally, to Australia. For two years, Federici was the toast of Melbourne's theater world, as he dazzled audiences with incredible performances in operettas, musical comedies, tragic dramas, and swashbuckling adventures. But none of those roles made Federici shine quite as much as his final role in a production of French composers Charles Gounod's powerful opera Faust and the iconic role of Mephistopheles, more commonly known as the devil. Nothing. In vain do I question through this zealous vigil both nature and our maker. No voice comes to murmur in my ear some word of comfort. I have pined, sad and lonely, unable to break the fetters which still bind me to this world. I see nothing. I know nothing. 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 These are the opening lines of Gunnar's Faust. As far as we know, Dr. Faustus was a real person, but we'll never know for sure which details of his story are true. At the top of Gunau's opera, Faust is an aging old scholar who, after spending decades of his life studying, has realized that he's achieved nothing, all the while missing his youth and chances at love. After cursing science and faith, Faust attempts suicide, twice. Each time he's about to drink the poison, he hears a choir outside his window and sets the poison back down on the table in despair. At a loss, Faust seeks the guidance from the devil. Moments later, the devil, Mephistopheles, appears. Faust tells Mephistopheles of his desires for youth and love, and Mephistopheles offers to give Faust everything he wants in exchange for his soul. In 1888, Faust came to Melbourne. In the late 19th century, Australian cities were full of theatergoers. The theater was the place to see and be seen, to socialize. At the time Federici found himself performing in Australia, 
Gounod's Faust was the most popular opera of the period. The excitement of Faust's story, coupled with the cutting edge of theater technology, as electric lighting had only just arrived, at the time, dazzled the crowd. Gounod's Faust, starring the biggest names in opera at the time, including our Federici, was destined to be a runaway success for the Princess Theater. An early review of the 1888 production described the Princess Theater's production of Faust as such. The first performance at the Princess Theater of Gounod's Faust, which took place last Saturday evening, attracted an audience so numerous as to fill every part of the theater, not a seat being vacant, notwithstanding the increased price of admission. The production may be looked upon in the light of an experiment, which, if not altogether successful from some points of view, has at least proved what may be done by clever stage management, beautiful scenery, and correct and handsome costumes and appointments. Having witnessed the present presentation of Faust at the Princess Theatre, the public will never again tolerate the careless and inartistic methods of placing the opera on a stage that have hitherto passed muster. As Federici donned his satanic Mephistopheles costume, crimson dress and pointed shoes, to go on for his first hotly anticipated performance, he never could have guessed what was awaiting for him at the end of the very first show. In the final act of Faust, the hero, Faust himself, has been delivered everything he asked for from Mephistopheles, but nothing came to him in the way Faust expected. Faust finds his life in shambles, and the woman he loves on trial for murdering her own child. As the show builds to a crescendo, Faust races to his lover's side, desperate to save her life. He begs her to make the same deal with the devil as he did, to sacrifice her soul so that she may continue to live. Instead, the woman turns away from Faust and cries out, Why are those hands red with blood? Go away! You fill me with horror. Casting her eyes towards heaven, she chooses angels over the devil, leaving Faust at the hands of Mephistopheles. Mephistopheles is ready to take the payment of Faust's soul by dragging the hapless scholar into hell. Let us hasten to leave this place, Mephistopheles cries. The sky grows light already. Follow our steps or I shall forsake you. Let us hasten to leave this place. Mephistopheles reaches for Faust, ready to end the borrowed time on which he's been living. As Mephistopheles grabs Faust, the ground beneath them opens, and the devil pulls Faust down into hell. In Federici's production at the Princess Theater, cutting-edge technology helped them achieve a stunning and dramatic effect for this final moment. Beneath the stage, a secret trapdoor opened, and Faust and Mephistopheles were lowered on an automated platform until they disappeared below in a haze of smoke and light. Such a wild scene shocked and delighted the audience at the Princess Theater, unused to electricity being part of their theatrical performances. But the most shocking part of the performance went on without the audience even knowing. From the S.A. Register, March 4, 1888. The English Opera Company at the Princess Theater gave the first performance of Faust on Saturday night before a crowded assemblage. 
Mr. Lumaine appeared as Faust, and Mr. F. Federici as Mephistopheles. The performance concluded with a sensational incident, although the audience dispersed without being aware of it. Federici played with success hardly anticipated, going for the last act apparently well. Just after going on, he became dazed and went through the act mechanically. He was descending with Faust after saying the last words of his part and had almost reached the lower floor where he fell forward and never spoke again. Beneath that stage, Federici descended to his death. He was only 38 years old. For many years, Federici had suffered from a long and painful heart disease. In the 1880s, the only treatment for such conditions came in the form of nitroglycerin pills. Only mildly effective in treating such diseases, the pills also became less effective over time. And by 1888, they no longer worked for poor Federici. The strain of the arduous rehearsals for Faust had taken a toll on his already weakened heart. Though not notable for any audience member in attendance for that ill-fated performance of Faust, members of the orchestra that night recalled Federici struggling through moments in the performance that he had completed in rehearsals with ease. But the excitement of opening night, the taxing performance, and the moving stage proved too much for Federici's unsteady heart. As the trapdoor lowered Federici down, he was seized by a heart attack. The newspapers of the time recounted the events through the eyes of the conductor. At the end of the first performance, the conductor noticed a tremor in Federici as he descended into hell with Faust in the last scene. By a marvelous effort of self-will, he kept himself going until the last note. Unbeknownst to the actors still performing the opera on stage, Federici's body fell into a heap below their feet. Federici was rushed to the theater's green room, where a doctor was summoned as quickly as possible. For over an hour, the doctor tried desperately to revive the actor with an early version of a defibrillator, a set of wires attached to galvanic batteries. The doctor shocked Federici with electric currents again and again and again, trying hopelessly to restart the performer's heart. For over an hour, shocks coursed through Federici's unresponsive body, until finally, the doctor gave up and declared him expired. In the end, Federici died below that stage. But his spirit never left the theater. After the final applause for Faust ended, Faust's stage manager gathered the cast to deliver the terrible news. Federici had died an hour ago, long before that final curtain dropped. The cast stared at the stage manager in shock. Slowly, a murmur started to rise from the assembled actors. How could Federici have died? He was just on stage with them, taking his final bow. Every member of the cast had seen him, still in his crimson Mephistopheles costume, still in his rightful place for the curtain call, bowing to the audience alongside the rest of them, was Federici. Slowly, the group dispersed, stunned into silence, lost in thought, wondering how could they have seen what they'd seen while Federici's dead body lay beneath a sheet in the green room right over their heads.
Did Federici's ghost insist on taking his bow at curtain call, demanding the praise and applause he so rightly deserved? It seems Federici was determined to remain on stage on that night and for eternity. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. Now, our story continues. Since that fateful night in 1888, when Federici's spirit first appeared before hundreds in attendance at his final performance, stories of his ghost have filled the elaborate walls of the theater. One such story occurred only 10 short years after Federici's dramatic death. Around 1900, a new fire alarm system was installed in the Princess Theater. The resident fireman was required to punch a time clock every hour. If the fireman failed to clock in, then the alarm was raised and a brigade dispatched. One night, during a heat wave, no such message came through from the on-site firemen. Within minutes, the brigade set off, expecting to find the Princess Theater in flames. But when the truck reached the theater, the station firemen found no sign of a fire and no sign of their colleague. They scoured the theater, searching for the lost fireman. Finally, they found him, huddled in a dark corner in the back of the auditorium, shaking with fear. As the fireman began to recount his tale, his dread started to infect the rest of the brigade. As the fireman explained, he had opened the sliding section of the theater's roof to let heat out and fresh air in. As he opened the panels, bright moonlight flooded the auditorium, revealing a figure standing, statue-like, on center stage. It was a tall, well-built man with distinguished features, dressed in evening clothes with a long cloak and a top hat. The fireman had seen Federici, standing center stage, his arms raised as he gazed out at the non-existent audience, searching still for that last applause. The fireman pulled the shocked man to his feet, a palpable sense of tension in the air. Were they alone? Was this real? The normally grounded group of men were so shaken by the sight of their burly cohort quaking in fear, they didn't stick around to find out. They hurried out of the theater, hoping never to return. What kept Federici trapped in the Princess Theater? What stopped his soul from moving on? From leaving his mortal life behind him the way he should have? Was the stage effect so connected to the concept of hell that something supernatural happened at the moment of Federici's death? Or was it perhaps more personal? More selfish? Did Federici continue to claim his spot center stage, searching for eternity for another audience? Perhaps some clues lie in the days and weeks following his death. In the days after the deadly performance of Faust, the papers of Melbourne were rife with news of Federici's dramatic exit. It seems almost an act of irreverence to criticize the performance of an actor who has only just been carried to his grave. Nevertheless, it is only his due and proper tribute to say that he both sang and acted on Saturday night in a truly artistic manner. 
and that he has never been seen to greater advantage than he was on that occasion. His death created a terrible feeling of consternations, first in the company with who he had but a few minutes before been in association, and next, of course, in the public mind. The audience knew nothing of the occurrence, for his death took place actually beneath the stage, after he and Mr. Lemayne had descended into the trap. It was one of those many tragedies which have happened in connection with the history of the stage, and it will not be soon forgotten. The theater was closed on Monday evening out of respect to the memory of the deceased artist. Even on the brink of death, Federici's talent shone through. His only performance as Mephistopheles was met with rave reviews. Had he not passed away, it was clear Federici was poised to ascend to the next level of his career. But in the terrible tragedy of his death, Federici was replaced. As a mark of respect, no evening performance was given at the Princess the day following Federici's death. But after that... On Tuesday and each subsequent evening, Faust was again performed, Mr. St. Clair taking the part of Mephistopheles at a few hours' notice. The management may consider themselves most fortunate in having been able to secure the services of a gentleman competent to understand so important a role with only a few hours for preparation. Mr. St. Clair proved himself a capable actor and vocalist, receiving much applause and being called before the curtain. An actor's worst nightmare, being replaced, and then forgotten. Night after night, St. Clair took the stage in Federici's role. Night after night, he left the stage to uproarious applause. And night after night, Federici's ghost lingered in the theater, pained by this actor receiving the praise that Federici himself was due. Ripped from the earth at the height of his career, at the moment of his pivotal performance, Federici was torn from a certain fame and fortune his life had been leading him to. The worldwide travel that Federici had been enjoying, something few people in the 1800s ever got to experience, was gone. His 10-year marriage to the love of his life, actress Lena Monmouth, was cut tragically short. His two children were now growing up without a father. Is it any wonder Federici's spirit refused to leave the place that took all that promise and excitement away from him? Was Federici so distraught at the unfairness of his death that he refused to cross over to the world of the dead? It's more than possible, because St. Clair was not the last actor who upset Federici's spirit. In the 1990s, famous Australian actor Rob Guest took on the role of the Phantom in a long-running Australian-New Zealand tour of Phantom of the Opera, performing the part a record 2,289 times. Eventually, the production took him to Melbourne and the Princess Theatre. Guest performed the musical to the great delight of Melbourne and took his leave from the Princess to great admiration. But when he returned home, he found a most troublesome letter from a woman who had seen one of his Princess Theatre performances. Dear Mr. Guest, the letter read, I'm writing in admiration of your stellar turn as the Phantom. My husband and I enjoyed the performance so. 
However, I'd be remiss if I didn't inform you of the strangest sight I'd ever seen during your rendition of The Point of No Return. We were seated in the dress circle, and from there I saw what I can only say was another man standing to your left as he sang. He was dressed in full evening wear, including a top hat. He was there for maybe a full minute, and then he was gone, just like he was never there in the first place. I hope this doesn't disturb you, but I thought you should be made aware of this fascinating event. Rob Guest was shocked. The ghost of Federici had been with him on that stage. Sightings of Federici never stopped being reported over the years. In 1989, the artistic director of the production of Les Miserables claimed that nearly their entire cast witnessed an incredible sight at the same time. After a long week of technical rehearsals, the cast assembled for their final dress rehearsal. The night wore on as they worked their way through the three-hour musical. Exhausted by the taxing performance, the cast struggled to find the energy to finish their final run-through. As they paused for lighting adjustment, the onstage cast saw the most peculiar sight. From the empty rows of seats in the audience, a gray, shimmering light appeared. All of the stage lights were pointed at the cast, so there was no conceivable source of this unexplained gray light. They all paused, staring in shock as the light seemed to coalesce into a ball. Slowly, the light floated towards them. As it reached the lip of the stage, it suddenly vanished, as quickly as it appeared. The cast wondered aloud if the vision was a result of their collective exhaustion and the stories they've been hearing of the ghost that haunted the Princess Theater. But nothing could truly explain over a dozen people seeing the same eerie light at the same time. After a while, they came to the conclusion that if the light was, in fact, the resident phantom of this opera, Perhaps the light was Federici's way of letting them know he was enjoying the performance. His way of giving the cast his blessings to perform in his space. The artistic director of Les Miserables said, Everyone who works there accepts him. So, we figured we could too. Even the owner of the Princess Theater, Elaine Mariner, has had experiences with Federici. But Mrs. Mariner so enjoys the ghost's presence that she refused offers from psychics, mediums, and ghost hunters to try and connect with Federici, to cleanse the theater and help his spirit move on. Instead, Federici is now an important part of the rich historic fabric of the Princess Theater. To this day, on every opening night performance at the Princess, a third row seat in the dress circle is left empty for Federici. It's a sign of good luck if he joins the audience on that night. Perhaps Federici achieved in death what he so desperately wanted in life, eternal fame. Only he didn't accomplish this as an actor, but rather as one of the most well-known theater ghosts in the world. Thank you for listening to Haunted Places. Don't forget to subscribe to Haunted Places on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, 
Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every other Thursday. We'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Ron Shapiro. With production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Haunted Places is written by J.C. Heldrich. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>